Does Michael Cohen's guilty plea to campaign finance violations implicate the president in criminal campaign finance activity? What about the defenses that the president has raised to these charges? Did Trump or the Trump campaign violate the prohibition on soliciting foreign contributions with their summer 2016 meeting with Russian government operatives at Trump Tower? On Season 2, Episode 2 of the ELB Podcast, we talk with Bob Bauer, former White House counsel and former Obama campaign general counsel. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to the ELB Podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. I'm joined today by Bob Bauer, former White House counsel and former general counsel for the Obama campaign, who is currently a professor of practice at NYU School of Law. Bob is a world-renowned expert in campaign finance and election law, and it's a great pleasure to have him join us today on the program. Well, thanks so much for coming back onto the podcast, Bob. Sure. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, last time we talked, we were talking about election administration and uh, what was going on with uh, the Trump administration in that area, which uh, is probably worth a a revisit, but that's not our topic today. Today, I thought we would talk about the campaign finance controversies that are swirling around uh, President Trump and his orbit. And uh, you've been writing a lot about this, I have, and I thought it'd be useful for us to have a conversation about the, the two main campaign finance stories that could potentially implicate the president uh, and certainly people around him. One is the Michael Cohn story, which is been getting attention with the recent uh, guilty plea. And the other is the story of the Trump Tower meeting and Don Jr., uh, which seems to be off the radar a little bit right now, but could come back at any time. So uh, I thought maybe, uh, could you uh, begin by just laying out what is it that Michael Cohn pleaded guilty to uh, in uh, a uh, federal courthouse uh, in uh, New York earlier this week? He pleaded guilty to two campaign finance violations, one an excessive contribution in paying for the silence of uh, one woman with whom Donald Trump was alleged to have an affair, namely Stormy, Stormy Daniels, and also having caused a corporate contribution to have been made as part of another hush money scheme involving yet another woman with whom the president was alleged to have an affair, Karen McDougal. In both those cases, it was said that he coordinated with the campaign to assure that neither of these women would tell the story to the press on the eve of the election. In one case, in the Daniels case, the negotiations took place in October, right on the eve of the election of 2016. In the other case, there was a longer period of defensive maneuvering uh, by Mr. Cohn from roughly June uh, into the fall. And in that case, involved coordinating a use of resources by AMI, a media publishing company, that the plea asserts was engaged in what's called a catch and kill operation. That is to say, they knew that McDougal wanted to tell her story. They suggested to her that they would publish it and offer her other access to their pages, but their actual purpose in coordination with the campaign was to make sure she didn't tell that story at all for the purpose of helping Donald Trump win the presidential election. 
And so, and that's, so that second one is the one that implicates the corporate contributions because AMI, that, that's correct. the parent company of National Enquirer is a corporation. That's correct. And what about the use of essential consulting, which was the, the uh, entity that he used to um, uh, cause the payments? Yes, he set up LLCs for the purpose of negotiating the receipt and the reimbursement of those payments. One understands from the uh, allegations here uh, from the criminal information in the plea that the purpose here was to cover tracks, uh, to provide for you know, a mechanism for the money to flow and for the reimbursements to be made without uh, direct tracing to Michael Cohn or to Donald Trump. And so that maybe shows evidence of trying to cover up uh, or uh, you know, consciousness of guilt. Uh, yes, because the reimbursements from the Trump company to Mr. Cohn were styled as retainers. The amount that uh, was used to reimburse the Stormy Daniel contribution, the, and I'll keep on saying alleged because obviously, you know, he hasn't been tried. Well, I can't say he alleged because he's pled. To, he's pled. So there hasn't been a trial, but Michael Cohn has conceded that he violated the law. So according to the criminal information, the reimbursement from the Trump organization to Michael Cohn for the monies that he paid to silence her by agreement with her attorney and with her, those were run through the Trump organization and treated as payments for services so that they were carried on the books for a purpose other than what, in fact, the money was paid for. All right, so let's walk through some of the arguments that have been made that uh, this is not an appropriate uh, despite the plea, this is not a crime, or it's not a, uh, or it's not a proven crime, and, and it doesn't implicate the president. So um, uh, let's start with this idea that uh, um, payment of hush money is, by de definition, something personal and not campaign related. I think in uh, a recent post you had, maybe it was at Lawfare, you said this is not in the heartland of um, campaign finance violations. C certainly, I can't think of other campaign finance cases other than the John Edwards case where something like this uh, arose. Yes, what I meant by that was in the heartland of the offenses that the Department of Justice would typically prosecute. <clears throat> and in that piece, I distinguish it, for example, from straw donations, uh, conduit contributions that A makes to a candidate by providing the money to B and having B make the contribution in his or her own name. Those are contributions or violations that over the years the department has fairly vigorously enforced. There is the precedent of the Edwards prosecution. I think it's distinguishable from this particular case, but I meant criminally enforceable. Certainly the Federal Election Commission has a set of regulations that govern this personal use of campaign funds and distinguish between personal and campaign related purposes. And the FEC would presumably entertain a complaint about these issues and address it civilly. The point I was making is how often one sees, it was a point about how often one might see criminal enforcement of these provisions, and it's not something by and large the department would be concerned with. I do think, however, this case is different, and I think it explains why the department was prepared to force the plea on Michael Cohn. So why is it not just personal use for Trump in, in this case? So the rules very specifically speak to uh, personal use, and I'm going to have, it's going to take me a minute here to sort of untangle the rule because it reads in a confusing way, so bear with me for a second. 
but a personal use that a candidate makes of campaign funds. Let's just start with that. Okay, that's how the word personal enters into the discussion. We have rules that prohibit the personal use of campaign funds. And a personal use of campaign funds is a use to pay an expense that would have existed irrespective of candidacy. And an example is a mortgage payment on a house or a tuition payment uh, for uh, children or vacation, correct? So, th so these are the Duck and Hunter kind of charges that we're hearing about now. That is correct. That is exactly correct. We're drawing on campaign funds to pay for things that you would have paid for anyway, but whether you simply wanted to use campaign funds or be ran out of personal funds, whatever the reasons were, you drew on campaign funds to pay for these clearly personal purposes. And the rules distinguish between per se personal uses, like paying for the mortgage on your house, and other more complicated cases where the commission has to make a determination of whether the use was personal on a case-by-case -case basis. There's another provision that we have to bring into the conversation that has to do with the third party payment of expenses, where someone else pays an expense that would have existed irrespective of candidacy or not irrespective of candidacy. If a third party pays for an expense that would not have existed but for the candidacy, then that third party payment is a contribution to the candidate. It's campaign related. It's not an expense that otherwise would have been paid by that person at that time in that way. So the question then becomes, uh, what, how do these provisions bear? How do these rules bear on the facts that have been exposed in the Trump case? And as you say, it requires somebody to address the fundamental question, to what extent was there a campaign-related purpose here in the payoff to Stormy Daniels, in the coordinated corporate contribution to Karen McDougal, uh, that brings the campaign finance laws into play, or to what extent is this just simply that something that would have happened anyway because Donald Trump would have looked for somebody to help him underwrite, or that he himself would have paid out of his own funds to prevent himself from family or personal embarrassment. In this case, you have a couple of factors that sharply distinguish it from the Edwards case. In the Edwards case, there was some real fuzziness about motive, and two of the key witnesses, in fact, the two key witnesses who would have supplied evidence of that the conversation of the purpose of these payments were unavailable at trial. One had died a number of years before and the other was over the age of 100 and couldn't attend. Here you have the person who made all the arrangements who's testifying directly to the understanding of why these payments were made. And he is saying, Michael Cohn is saying, that the purpose was precisely to spare the president any damage in the campaign. And of course, the president already was back on his heels on the issue of his behavior toward, toward attitudes uh, toward conduct with women as a result of the release of the Access Hollywood tapes. Here we are on the eve of the election. You have not one but two women alleging that he had um, affairs with them. And one of them is an adult film actress. The other one you know, was, a, was a Playboy cover model. And so Cohn is saying our purpose here was to do everything we could to prevent a story from being published that would have been damaging to his presidential candidacy. Another critical factor here is that the criminal information makes clear that these conversations took place with the knowledge and active participation of other members so far unnamed of the presidential campaign. So the campaign was directly involved in the conversation about the nature and timing of these payments. So those are additional factors that bear very directly on the question 
of whether or not the payments were made or would have been made irrespective of candidacy. It's fairly easy to imagine, for example, that had Donald Trump not had a political career or his political career was over, he might well have not engaged in all of these complex gymnastics or paid this money uh, to silence these women. He might have simply said, they're lying, it's not true. End of story, it's not true, and just moved on. But something very elaborate was done here and substantial sums of money were devoted and a complex scheme with a publishing company was entered into. And Michael Cohen is saying our reason was uh, very specifically to protect Donald Trump's fortunes in the upcoming November election. So in that respect, the prosecutors will come in and argue, as, they've had, as they did, they used the term principal purpose, that the purpose of all of this activity and these payments was to underwrite an expense of the campaign, to underwrite an expense in support of his candidacy or in defense of his candidacy. So that's, that's roughly, I hope clearly, uh, what distinguishes this from the Edwards case and brings it within the prohibition of existing rules. One of the facts that the Wall Street Journal came out with last week, which prosecutors didn't give details as to how they corroborated Cohn's story. But according to the journal, a, week a month before, in September 2016, uh, at that point, Stormy Daniels' lawyers trying to make a deal and Cohn's not interested. It's only after the Access Hollywood tape, as you mentioned, that the payment is made. And so if this was about protecting Melania from hearing this news, you'd think the payment would have been made in September. Um, you know, if that fact is true, although we don't, I, I, you know, we don't have any of the corroborating information that's referred to in the, um, uh, in the information that the U.S. Yes, and that's a very important point because what you're stressing again, uh, or what you're pointing in the direction of again, is these are issues that are resolved on the facts of the particular case. And so that when people say, well, you know, Edwards did the same thing, you can't really speak in categorical terms about what Edwards did. You have to distinguish the Edwards case from this case on specific facts. And that's what put the president into jeopardy. And ultimately, with the uncertainty, the fuzziness, at least as the jury certainly found it to be, of the Edwards case that accounted for a result in that instance that I don't think this president can count on. Now, in order for the president to be criminally uh, responsible, putting aside whether a sitting president can be indicted in that whole question. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it would be required for it to be criminal, it would be required that it be willful. And uh, uh, Trump was out there saying, oh, you know, campaign finance violations happen all the time. Look at the Obama campaign, which I should point out, you were uh, the head of that, uh, the general counsel of that campaign. Uh, Obama mm -hmm. campaign was fined $375,000. This is just like something that should be handled civilly. And of course, the criminal uh, uh, code, uh, it's uh, 52 USC 30109 subdivision D uh, goes through the penalties, uh, requires proof of willfulness. And so what, what has to be proven or what would have to be proven in order to show that this was a criminal violation on the part of Trump, if Trump was in fact, as Cohn has stated, um, in on this from the beginning to make these payments uh, to these women right before the election? I will note, first of all, that, and I know we'll get to this shortly, in the Trump Tower case, as well in this case, one of the most striking uh, features of these narratives, one, one aspect of it that's sort of hard to overlook, is that nobody appears to be consulting a lawyer. In fact, they appear to be quite conscientiously steering away from consulting a lawyer. So Donald Trump was aware 
that uh, John Edwards had put himself in legal jeopardy with conduct not dissimilar from this, again, distinguishable on the facts. He was working with his lawyer, who was involved with the campaign, in fact, part of the campaign. And he's sophisticated enough, having run a, in the middle of a campaign, raising and spending money and knowing that it's regulated financial activity, that uh, he would have had to know that it was an issue. Uh, he would have had to know that there was something here he should attend to. And as we see so often in Trump's case, he didn't seem to particularly care. And in fact, um, as, and this will bring us back to the Russian Trump Tower meeting again, as in that case where he dictated a false press release about the purpose of the meeting on behalf of his son, here, uh, Mr. Cohn on his behalf and apparently at his direction and in coordination with him, and those are the words that Cohn used in his plea uh, to the court, his plea agreement, statement to the court in support of the plea agreement, uh, he and his lawyer engaged in an elaborate series of maneuvers to prevent this payment, if you will, from being carried on the books to reflect what in fact it was, right? It was, uh, everything was done through the establishment of the LLC and the reimbursements being styled as payment to Cone for legal services to mask what was in fact taking place here. So I believe that Cone will testify that, uh, uh, that they knew and in fact behaved as if they knew that they were up to something that they you know, could never allow to be clearly reflected on their books, much less spoken about publicly. And I think that all goes to the mens rea. It all goes to the knowingness of the violation. As you're saying this, I'm just recalling that I think it was Rudy Giuliani, uh, when he first came on the Trump legal team, he started, he, he actually gave what now appears to be false information publicly about how the payments were made and when the payments were made to reimburse code. Uh, all of this seems to suggest that they thought they had something to hide. Uh, when yes. 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 And, I, and, I and, and, and the truth of the matter is, I mean, let's be very clear. The truth of the matter is that in a case where this substantial amount of money is involved in politically very sensitive circumstances and all this subterfuge is engaged in, somebody in the position of being the nominee of a major political party who is one of two people who could become the next president of the United States is not going to get the benefit of the doubt on this question of knowingness. And now he has his lawyer, longstanding associate, who is saying, yes, you know, I committed a crime. Uh, he's not saying he just made a mistake. Uh, and he's saying he did this at the direction and in coordination and full knowledge of the president. All right, well, let's take a few minutes and turn to the other campaign finance issue, which is off the, off the front page for now, but presumably comes back when uh, Bob Mueller finishes his investigation, which has to do with the Trump Tower meeting. And this, this involves a very different part of um, the campaign finance rules, the parts involving uh, foreign interference in the election. So could you quickly walk us through what the potential legal liability might be for Don Jr. or others who attended that Trump Tower meeting in the summer before the election? They attended a meeting knowing that it was for a campaign-related purpose, and representatives of a foreign government, through one of whose officials had expressed his support for the presidential campaign, was supposedly coming with uh, information that they thought was useful to the campaign, for direct use in the campaign, and information that was in nature 
harmful to Hillary Clinton. This meeting was planned and understood uh, very clearly to be for that purpose. They met with uh, the Russian parties. They claim they were disappointed with what they were offered. But let's just begin with what we know happened and then move to what this might signify about other facts yet not, not yet on the public record. First of all, no lawyer would have told them to take that meeting, and there's no indication any lawyer was asked. The foreign nationals under Federal Election Campaign Act are prohibited from making any expenditure, which includes anything of value, to influence the outcome of a federal election. They are not to, they cannot spend money for that purpose at all. And that not only in federal elections, I should add, but also in state and local elections. Moreover, US nationals cannot support them in attempting to influence illegally US elections. US nationals cannot provide them with substantial assistance in effectuating a scheme to influence those elections. US nationals may not solicit financial support from them, and again, that's of anything of value to influence the outcome of elections. However, the Trump campaign, at a minimum, made it clear they were in the market for that information, and a solicitation for legal purposes can be expressed or implied, understood in the circumstances and on the facts. It doesn't have to, for example, be a clear statement from the campaign in writing, anytime you have anything that could be helpful, please let us know because we really would like to see it. That's not necessary, although honestly, in, this, in these circumstances, from what we know about the Trump Tower meeting, the expression of interest was as explicit as it possibly could be. And in fact, as you recall, Don Jr.'s messages included the statement that he was really interested in what they had, what they had and also had some suggestions about the timing of the release of any information that they might have that was damaging to Hillary Clinton. Mrs. Ray so, made the famous, I, I would love it, uh, comment. I would love it, precisely. So he knew, the campaign knew, that the Russians were expending resources. After all, I'd like to say from time to time, the party from Moscow didn't travel to the United States on foot. So there were, there were expenditures clearly being made to assemble material, call it opposition research, that a foreign national intended for a U.S. campaign to use to influence the U.S. election. And the U.S. nationals were prepared to let the Russians know what was useful and what was not useful, and that they were open to having whatever the Russians could supply, which I think raises the question of any legal solicitation, uh, as well as a substantial assistance to the Russians in sort of focusing their efforts in a way that would be strategically most helpful to the Trump campaign. So that raises just on the facts of that meeting, uh, that raises uh, a, a significant issue both for the campaign as an entity and also for Don Jr. Now, what does it signify? Well, we know that that was not the last of the efforts to encourage the Russians to help. Even if we put to the side for the moment, and I don't think you can put it permanently to the side, the president's public appeal to the Russians uh, to locate and publish the uh, deleted Clinton emails, the 30,000 emails that he thought, you know, had been, you know, hidden away somewhere and that she had reason to fear the publication of. That was his fantasy at the time, and that's what he asked the Russians to help him with. Even if you set that aside for a moment, we know that uh, Don Jr. and other members of the campaign were in contact either directly with the Russians, think about George Papadopoulos for a moment, or with agents of Russia, like WikiLeaks, about the use of 
uh, the acquisition and use of purloined email material for use in the campaign against Hillary Clinton. So when you take all of that together, the Trump Tower meeting both on its own terms and it's connected to other things that we know about contacts between the campaign and the Russians, uh, it raises a host of, of questions about the extent to which the Trump campaign was involved in soliciting and supporting a Russian attempt to influence the outcome of the presidential campaign in November of 2016. Now, I've heard, um, I guess, three different defenses to the potential criminal liability here. Uh, one is uh, what Don Jr. did was not willful, back to the question of willfulness. One is that uh, opposition research is not something of value or can't be valued. And a third is that the First Amendment should protect this because information should be free and you should have a First Amendment right to receive whatever information you want from a foreign source. Um, what do you think about those three defenses? We could start with the question of willfulness. I'll start with the question of willfulness. He was not the only person in that meeting. Let's assume we took the picture that periodically and not very flatteringly, um, some within the Trump camp want to paint of Don Jr., which was that he was in the fight and he didn't have the slightest idea what he was doing. Well, that isn't true of the entire campaign team. And the entire senior campaign team, including the president's brother-in-law, excuse me, son-in-law, uh, convened to hear uh, the Russian offer, were aware that they were coming and showed up in the room to hear what they were saying. Now, I recall, and I believe it's on behalf of Jared Kushner, the claim was made, well, this was all very boring stuff and I just left. But no indication that there was any belief that even if that's true, that that's in fact what the reaction was, no, no indication that there was any belief that they were engaging in legally risky and certainly inappropriate activity. They just, at that time, didn't feel they were getting what they were looking for, if you were to believe their account, but that doesn't mean that they stopped looking for it. Um, so Don Jr. may have been sort of at sea here, who knows? But I don't think that helps the rest of the president, the presidential campaign or the president. And there is this ongoing question of what the president knew and when he knew it. Uh, there, there are, Cohn has indicated through his lawyer that the president knew in advance and approved, or at least that's the press report. We haven't seen that yet, but that may come out in the course of his cooperation with prosecutors. And that, of course, dramatically escalates the inquiry where the candidate himself is in on it. And who is to say how much encouragement over time, even beyond that meeting, he gives to his operatives to try to enlist the Russians in support of the campaign. So I don't think the willfulness, even if at the end of the day it helps Don Jr., is necessarily going to help the campaign or the president. Yeah, you know, uh, you mentioned earlier about the campaign lawyers not being there. Don McGahn seems to play no role in all of this that we've heard, which is quite odd for a campaign. Well, yeah, listen, that's exactly right. I mean, you, you would imagine, by the way, in a campaign run on, on, on anything like sort of ethical or professional grounds, you would imagine that when this offer is made, as tantalizing as it might have seemed to the senior Trump campaign management, they would have gone to somebody who was an expert, and there's no indication that they ever did, and said, by the way, how do we get this without putting ourselves in, in trouble? I mean, what are the options that we have for potentially exploring what's available about Hillary Clinton without landing ourselves in the middle of a major FECA violation? and the lawyer may or may not come up with some ingenious uh, alternative here, but I don't know what it would be, but there's no indication that question was ever asked. Right, and what about the other two points? It's nothing of value, uh, opposition research is nothing of value, uh, or that the First Amendment would prohibit 
treating it as uh, a campaign finance violation because uh, information needs to be free. Well, we'll take both of them are stated at such an absurdly high level of generality that they just literally collapse when closely examined. First of all, opposition research is, of course, something of definitive value in a campaign. Campaigns set up Operation Research Shops. They, they, they hire people uh, to do the research. They retain consultants to do research. It is a core function of parties and campaigns uh, to research issues, uh, to research their own vulnerabilities, and to research the weaknesses of their opposition. And there's a value, clearly, to all of this material. And it's the oddest oddest suggestion in the world that the campaign, that the opposition research loses value and is of no significance for campaign finance purposes um, if it's illegally obtained. How, how interesting is that? I mean, what sort of sort of incentive does that supposedly build into the law? So that doesn't make any sense. Of course, opposition research has value and, and, and very, you know, I think demonstrably so. Then the First Amendment argument is, is also stated at an absurdly high level of generality. You can make that claim if you want to abstract at that level about almost every aspect of the regulation of political money in the United States, right? And some make exactly that argument. They make even that argument against disclosure. They'll go as far as to say that First Amendment values dictate that we do away with substantive prohibitions, but also with all transparency requirements. But there is, and it has been upheld um, unanimously by a D.C. circuit, and unanimous and affirmed by the Supreme Court of the United States that foreign nationals cannot expend money, engage in activities, campaign type activities to influence the outcome of a US election. And here you have a meeting between representatives of the foreign government and a campaign and conceivably an ongoing uh, alliance, an ongoing cooperative effort uh, to achieve the mutual goal of seeing Donald Trump elected president of the United States. Now, if there's a First Amendment defense to that, that runs directly contrary uh, to what the Court of Appeals has held in validating the foreign national prohibition and that the Supreme Court subsequently affirmed. There'd be nothing left, absolutely nothing left to speak of, of that prohibition, except that foreign nationals could not, for example, buy you know, express advocacy advertisements and put them on the air or contribute money directly to a campaign. But there would be such a remaining wide zone of campaign-related activity that foreign nationals could engage in in coordination with American campaigns on that theory that, for all intents and purposes, the foreign national prohibition reach would be vitiated. It would be wholly undermined. So I think that's also... Um, a, a, an exceedingly weak argument. And I don't think it, I, I don't think that on the facts that could emerge that may sustain a prosecution on this basis by the special counsel, say for example, brought against the Trump presidential campaign, I don't think that First Amendment defense stands even a remote chance of success. Our final question for you, and it's probably the hardest one to answer, which is I'm gonna ask you to speculate as to what what, what is all this gonna mean? Um, looks like there's, uh, one or two serious campaign finance violations that implicate the Trump campaign and perhaps the president himself. Where do we go from here? Are we going to see um, uh, this mentioned in a report? Is this going to be the basis for potential impeachment if Democrats retake the House uh, or even if they don't? Uh, criminal charges? What, what do you see looking ahead? 
I'll begin by saying what we all, I mean, I think all of us, um, or many of us, certainly I do, periodically forget is how far behind the investigators we all are. So where this goes probably depends on access to a host of really rich information that's been developed and appropriately um, held in strict confidence by investigators about which we know nothing. So I say that just as a sort of a, a remark in all humility about what it means to make a prediction about things like this. We may well see, and we already have seen, the president drawn directly into this, um, even if Mueller has concluded, as Giuliani, the president's lawyer, has said, that he cannot indict the president while in office. That doesn't mean the president doesn't appear, as he already did in this, in this plea agreement, the Michael Cohen plea agreement as individual number one, that he will not appear in criminal indictments uh, for all intents and purposes as, a, as an unindicted co-conspirator and perhaps named as such as Nixon was during the Watergate prosecutions. So we certainly could see that. We could see the indictment of the campaign. We could see the indictment of other uh, senior campaign aides and officials, including Donald Trump Jr., something apparently the president has begun to worry a great deal about. You mentioned impeachment. Um, yes, it's certainly, it's certainly possible that when the Democrats regain control of the House, uh, that uh, at least an impeachment inquiry would begin. I mean, the first step would for the House to define the standards and then to pare down the issues that have surfaced in this administration and determine which of those are appropriately, appropriately support an impeachment um, vote. That's possible. And we could also imagine a situation where, you know, something breaks in this case uh, that so discredits the president that he ultimately has his own Nixon moment and he starts to lose his support in the Congress, begins to erode, and he begins to hemorrhage Republican as well as Democratic support. Uh, I, I can't speculate on what that could be. We've been surprised at every turn by uh, the developments in this investigation, but I don't think we should assume, I, I recognize this as a bold thing to say in a period of sort of you know, stubbornly polarized politics, I don't think we can assume that there is no line that the president could have crossed that solid evidence would subsequently establish that wouldn't lose him Republican support. I just, I just don't agree that that's the case. And let me give you one example, and I'll stop with this. You know, the president at one point when he began to speak fairly liberally about his wish to self-pardon, or not his wish to self-pardon, but his power to self-pardon, you know, that he, he certainly could pardon himself, that his pardon power was unqualified, drew a stinging rebuke from Chuck Grassley, the chairman of the Republican chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. I mention that because, you know, there are limits. And just the other day, I happened to be reading a treatment of the Nixon Watergate episode, you know, and there came a point when some of his staunchest reporters, like supporters, like Representative Charles Wiggins of California, were invited to the White House to read the transcripts, the White House, the, the, the transcripts of the tapes uh, that ultimately under the ruling of the Supreme Court of the United States versus Nixon, President Nixon had to give up. And Wiggins, who had been as stalwart as any, just made it very clear he, he'd hit a wall. There's nothing more he could do, as hard as he had defended Nixon, as long as he had defended Nixon before. Trump could face that moment. Well, on that provocative note, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, Bob Bauer. Um, as always, it's I learned so much from talking to you. So thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Rick.
WELB podcast is produced with the assistance of the UC Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The theme music for the LB podcast is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. This is Rick Hassan for the LB podcast. Please join us next time. Goodbye. Thank you.